Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And hopefully we figured out our sound issues this week. We just did some adjusting. So. Fingers crossed. I'm exhausted. Me too. It's been one of those weeks where just everything, everything. Everything has been just everything. Yes. Austin had an encounter oh, with God. a half-naked man, and you can guess which half. Yeah, uh, so I was uh, walking in the park, and um, there's this guy decides, like, you know what's a great place to just start peeing? On this tree, next to a playground, just right in front of everybody. <laughs> and my response was just that it's like, are you fucking kidding me? And then he got real mad and whipped around and just, <laughs> just like, so I had to Needed to the... show off to you afterwards. Basically said that I was gay because I wanted his penis back in his pants in public. <laughs> And then yelled, it's like, there's no bathrooms in this park. And it's like, yeah, but there's like six a block from here. Walked. You need- Didn't he also ask you, haven't you ever been in a men's room before? Oh, like he yeah. thought the great outdoors and a playground was a men's room. He was super drunk. So um, then he like, you know, is still screaming at me. And I'm, uh, I was just yelling, fuck you at him. There's another guy in the park who was agreeing with me. And it was kind of, we had a bonding moment mm-hmm. of like this asshole. Yeah. Come on, this asshole. So he rode off on his bike, super drunk. And, and I did this a- is an older guy who is well past the age where gay as an insult is even should even be in your head. Oh, no, he was. I mean, if, when you're an asshole, all insults are always in your head. Mm. So this guy was just old, drunk asshole. And I got to do a police report on my lunch break. And it was great. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what happens when I forget to make you lunch. You end up having to talk to people and it's true. I was penises. I was begging for food from people. <laughs> That was my week. I just had one of those weeks, you know? Yeah. One of those weeks where everything happens and nothing happens and you just get tired and overwhelmed. But we watched uh, half of Bly Manor yesterday. Yeah, we stayed up until like midnight because, you know, we're old and that's late for us. I was up until five. And How? then I had nightmares. Yeah. And I, I wasn't up till five because I was afraid of Bly Manor, although it is pretty freaky. I was up till five because I have insomnia. And for some reason last night, the pills were like, no. You were so spooked by Bly Manor. I will say the little boy on Bly Manor looks exactly like my dad did at that age, which is also very similar to how I looked at that age and kind of how I look now because I, I still get mistaken for a young person pretty often. And so that was a little weird to watch because... I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it's a little weird to see someone who looks like your dad playing this character. Oh, and I will say the the little girl has the very, very high-pitched little girl voice that is so much like my sister's. And when she does like the whiny sister stuff, I get uh, like uncontrollably <laughs> angry. And I love my sister. She's one of my favorite people. But Hi, oh Marta. My, oh, my God. When she was a child. Oh, my God. I, she's still my favorite person. And I would not trade her for anybody. Not even Taylor Swift. I Maybe mean, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift did look at you once, and I have photos to prove how excited you got Taylor by Swift that. has made more eye contact with me than my sister, <laughs> but we're also just a weird antisocial family. Yeah, yeah. Same goes for Austin and me. Like, we will sit in the same room together and just not speak because neither one of us wants to deal with another human, but we're on quarantine. Yes. Yeah, I think we are on day 217 of not ever leaving the house together at this point. And I'm not exaggerating. I actually counted, like, I didn't I didn't count. I used a computer. I figured but... out, like, half of the time we have been out somewhere, it has been in order to pick up a pizza. We have been to three places since we went on quarantine, which I believe was March 7th. 
And we went to Costco the day they announced the quarantine so we could stock up. And we are just now running out of some of the, some of the things. Costco membership, totally worth it. Indeed. Costco, sponsor us. Oh, please. I, they definitely will sponsor Indie Podcast. Oh, my God. If Post- if Costco would sponsor us, that would be amazing. And we went to the pet store because we needed something for the snake. And we went to pick up a pizza. And that is the extent of our travels in 217 days. Like, we've been other places, but it's been quick in and out. And it's never I, been together. Yeah, I've, I've been to work. And again, at work, I see, like, it's a busy day if I see five people. Yeah. Speaking of indie podcasts, we have an indie podcast convention coming I up. No. Um, let me see if I can find it real fast. Uh, we are going to be talking about it more extensively later, but we'll be doing a live stream of the show for this event, I believe, on December 2nd. I should have prepared for talking about this. I wasn't playing. Like, oh, you know. man, you're going to hear us live. So it's going to be nothing but ums, buts, <laughs> stuttering, errs. I don't know. Maybe we'll, likes. Be, maybe we'll be better with a camera in front of us. Indie pods united which is november 29th through december 3rd they're going to give us something more official to talk about it with i think later but it's really exciting there's like 100 podcasts involved and yeah check it out when it happens if you if you like listening to us which honestly we can't blame you you'll probably find something else equally cool because you know these seem like nice people and they're great yeah it's actually like a really cool and supportive group i've been enjoying it so are we ready to get started let's let's get started i think you're first this week i am and you're going to hear me get passionate about some shit because I'm talking about education itself this week. Oh, oh my. This is very meta for you. Yeah. See, I still get news alerts regarding like education issues. And part of that is because I still work tangentially to education these days. But also a lot of it's because I was a teacher. So it's like, hey, you might be interested in learning about this. And this thing popped up that was, why are we teaching reading in such a fucked up way? Basically, it had a much more journalistic title than that, but that's what it boiled down to. And I'm like, huh, because I used to be a sixth grade English teacher before I was a theater teacher and concurrently with being a theater teacher for a while. And I realized things were a little weird. Things are always a little weird. I mean, also as, as someone who is like tangential in education, kids in reading is really weird because yeah, they're and it's... so all over the map and people don't like it when you say, I don't know, try it out. <laughs> Yeah, and it's in part because of what I'm going to talk about today, which is how we teach reading. My sources are Fontes and Pinnell, American Public Media, I use that one a lot, Breaking the Code, Common Core State Standards Initiative, Spellfabet, which is S-P-E-L-F-A-B-E-T, National Literacy Directory, Resilient Educator, Center for Plain Language, and Wiley Communications. So this is going to sound like an opinion episode, and in a lot of ways it is, except I was not able to find any opposing viewpoints. Interesting. This is a scientific argument. It's kind of like when we talk about climate change and we have all this evidence that climate change exists. And then there are people going, well, climate change didn't exist when I was a kid, so it must not exist now. Or, well, this is, you know, I've always lived my life this way, so I'm not going to change how I live my life. That's what we're looking at with how we teach English, uh, how we teach reading specifically, is there is a scientific way we should be doing it. And the way we are doing it goes against 100% of the science. I tried to find an opposing opposing viewpoint so I could present something balanced. The only opposing viewpoints I found were, we've always done it this way, we don't know how else to do it. And I sympathize with that as a former teacher, very much so, but that's not a valid argument for continuing to do it. No, it is not. So let's get into it. Yes. So in schools, they use what is called the 3Q system, or you might have heard it called MSV. Like when... Q is in like the letter Q or Q is in like Q-U-E-U-E with all of the... Neither of those. 
three Q C U E. Okay. Like what I called when I was a stage manager. Oh god, there's too many Qs. There are three. That's too too many. <laughs> So this teacher wrote into a website called Shanahan on Literacy asking the doctor who runs it, is it a good idea to teach the three queuing systems and asking why he never writes about them? And he responded with, I don't write about them because I'm not a fiction writer. Oh, bird. Yeah. And he doesn't deny that this exists. He denies that it's a real thing we should be doing. So he's not going to write anything that could potentially be twisted around as supportive of it. Because he thinks the method is so faulty that it's basically fiction. So in uh, until the 1960s, two methods were used, sometimes together, sometimes apart. One was the idea that reading is about your visual memory. And when you see a word enough, it goes into your memory permanently, basically memorization in a way. This is called the whole world word approach, the whole word approach, and is best represented by the Dick and Jane books. See Dick run, run, Dick run. They've got a dog named Spot. And oh, so you God. start getting these words into your brain, and in a way it's memorization, but they also still have meaning. Yeah. The other was phonics, which I, you know, when we were kids, it was all the hooked on phonics worked for me kind of thing. Oh, and all the all the hooked on phonics kids never learned how to spell. It's, But it's an interesting thing, too, because we hadn't needed that before, because they just taught phonics in schools. And now by the time you and I were in school, they weren't really doing phonics as much anymore. And when they were, it was a whole other thing that I'll talk about. But our parents were taught to read in a different way than we were, which I think is part of why, because our parents read with us. So they taught us to read the same way that they were taught to read, which goes against how we were taught to read in schools. And I don't know about you, but I hated like story time and group reading in school. Oh, my God. They were, they were so slow. Like, like every time we were doing a group reading thing, I was like 10 pages ahead of the Exactly. Of the and then when we'd have story time, they'd be talking so slow and the kids would have to shout stuff out. And I'd be like, I'd be like 16 pages ahead if I was reading this on my own. I learned, I don't remember learning to read. It's like I popped into existence that way. That's not a brag. It's just. No, same here. That's, it's... that's just kind of how it worked for me because my parents read with me a lot and I was lucky enough to have a stay at home parent and all that. But that's not the case for everybody, even in that situation. Not everybody is a reader and that's fine. But the way they taught reading in schools went against how you and I learned to read at home. And it made it really boring for us. And it also made it so that you and I ended up ahead of our classmates, not because we learned to read earlier, but because we learned to read differently. In 1967, the 3Qing theory was initially presented at the American Educational Research Association meeting and by this guy named Ken Goodman, who was a professor, who was arguing that we don't need to actually understand letters or words in able to, to be able to read. What? Yeah. In fact, he said that people don't do this at all. Instead, he said people look at graphic cues, syntactic cues, and semantic cues. Graphic cues are the letters letting you guess what a word is. Syntactic cues are what you guess at, whether it's a noun, verb, or adjective, or whatever. And semantic cues are the context clues. So, yes, you need to know what letters and words are, but... Beyond that, you guess at the what the word is based on your previous knowledge of how words are supposed to work. So people would confuse house and horse if they were looking at them in a vacuum because they look so similar. And if they were trying to figure out which one it was, they would look at the context clues instead of trying to, you know, learn the word itself. Yep. Unless you've got like a bitchin' trailer, nobody rides their house to work. <laughs> Uh, he ended his presentation by saying, quote, skill in reading involves not greater precision, but more accurate first guesses based on better sampling techniques, 
greater control over language structure, broadened experiences, and increased conceptual development. As the child develops reading skill and speed, he increasingly uses fewer graphics. In English, please. American Public Media says, In the cueing theory of how reading works, when a child comes to a word she doesn't know, the teacher encourages her to think of a word that makes sense and asks, does this look right? Does this sound right? If a word checks out on the basis of those questions, the child is getting it. She's on the path to skilled reading. Which That seems like it makes a little sense, but not enough to actually work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, if the word was cabin and they said house, that would be considered good enough in this situation, basically. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't focus on the word cabin. The kid wouldn't learn the word cabin for this. Here's the key point in Goodman's argument that... I already read. As the child develops the skill and speed, he uses increasingly fewer graphic clues. This comes back later, but we don't actually see this happening. So keep that in your keep that in your brain. I'll keep that in my brain. At the same time Goodman was doing this, a developmental psychologist in New Zealand named Marie Clay was developing a similar theory called Meaning Structure Visual, or MSV. And the two would ultimately end up collaborating. They agreed that letters are the least helpful part of understanding words. No, those are the most... (laughs) One could argue those are the essential part of understanding words, unless you're, like, using hieroglyphs. Yeah, or if you're doing exclusively graphic novels with no words in them. And even... I do like graphic novels with no words in them. They have some... Okay, off topic. Yes, but I also mean to think about, you know... When you see kids in school now, instead of reading a class book, some of them are given the option to read a graphic novel that has no words in it to get the same basic lesson, except the basic lesson is supposed to include reading. Now, there's nothing wrong with graphic novels. Yeah. I mean, I don't personally enjoy them, but there's nothing wrong with them. Okay, There's a uh, really cool graphic novel. It's called The Arrival. Mm-hmm. It's basically like a weird, like fantastical world immigrant story where this mm-hmm. guy just arrives via balloon in this weird city and does not understand any of the words because it's all just symbols and like shapes Mm -hmm. and it's just him like navigating this weird place and it's kind of awesome yeah if i was going to use a graphic novel to teach something i was teaching the class like if i was teaching about the holocaust i decided to use mouse i would have the kids write their own captions for the different things like not for every single box but like on this page even if there are words on it oh write your own story uh mouse has about as much words as a real book yeah. It is a it is a wordy graphic novel. But it's like I'm just saying like rewrite this in your own words. Tell me what this is actually telling you. That way I can at least see if they're getting the information and they're practicing their reading and writing skills. So they agreed that letters are the least helpful visual helpful part of understanding words with Clay saying, quote, "In efficient word perception, the reader relies mostly on the sentence and its meaning and some selected features of the forms of words." So it's confusing because you also have already have to know other words. But you also don't have to know letters. Oh God, this and sound- words have no meaning. This sounds like it would kill your vocabulary. Yes. Yes, it does. Am I oh, just wait, like, am I just jumping all over wait your point here? until I get into the literacy statistics. Oh, no. Yeah. You work in a library, you know. Oh, I do. Goodman took it a step further, though, saying that recognizing the word at all wasn't necessary so long as the overall meaning of a sentence was understood. As America, American public media put it, his uh, put his method, quote, if sentences were making sense, the reader must be getting the the words right or right enough. (laughs) Again, back to the cabin and house thing. It's like there's some level cabin and house. Yes, those are the same words, but they diverge. Mm hmm. It's like a cabin is a house, a mansion is a house, a trailer is a house. 
and a refrigerator box is a house. So if you're saying like go to the house at the end of the street, at the end of the street there's a trailer, a cabin, and a mansion, nobody's gonna know what house to go to. You have to know the exact word. Like I am the kind of person who will look at an at the dumb questions people are asking and I will scream context clues. And also, you will also scream, Google it. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And you'll never hear me say that comprehension is less important than spelling or phonics or even grammar. And you know how much I love grammar. Comprehension is the number one thing. But think about this. This means that words, individual words, start to have no meaning. And context can't exist in a vacuum. And it context when you don't know the other words around it or you can't understand the tone of a piece becomes entirely subjective. So think about that episode of Friends where Joey was like, I still remember my first review in a otherwise lackluster play or something. Joey Tribbiani was abysmal and he thought it was a compliment. (laughs) And then he uses it to compliment Monica when she gets a bad review of her restaurant. (laughs) So these words, they make sense until they don't. And then you become the person that a writer in a writer's remembers however many years later and puts you out as a butt of a joke in a sitcom because you don't know these words that you can't understand their meaning. And what does this mean for your ability to learn a new language, which is so phonics and word based or your ability to read a scientific text? which is just a series of vocabulary words with the occasional, you know, A and V somewhere in there. So, like, you to know how to read, you have to know words, and you yes. have to know how to read a word you don't yet know and guess at the meaning by itself. If you don't, you're never going to be a strong reader, and the science backs that up. While this is going on, at the University of Michigan, a psychology doctoral candidate named Keith Stanovich was studying how people read words. And he believed in what Goodman had been doing. He thought that his his hypothesis was exactly Goodman's idea. And he was like, my psychological study will back up Goodman's theories. So the hypothesis was readers, use, skilled readers use context clues to understand words, while poor readers do not use context clues. That okay. was the hypothesis. I can see that. Yeah. I understand where they get that from. Mm-hmm. That's why it took me for forever to figure out what shuffed meant. Mm-hmm. because I didn't have a context clue with it. And it's like, I think that means annoyed. And it turns out it meant mildly amused. Yeah. Or I am like mixed up on the two because I've never learned no, it. No, chuffed means amused. Okay. Because I thought it meant annoyed. Or um, it means amused or pleased. Like, I'm absolutely chuffed that you did this nice thing for me. The opposite turned out to be true. Skilled readers didn't need context because they knew the words. They were able to read quicker. They were able to understand the con- they were able to understand the text faster. Poor readers relied so much on context clues that the individual words were getting lost and their comprehension was lower. Their reading was slower because they couldn't look at a word and immediately know what it means. And that has been replicated over and over and over. Skilled readers can look at a word and figure out meaning without context which I'll talk more about how you do that in a minute. But basically, to be a skilled reader, you shouldn't need a shit ton of context, and you certainly shouldn't need pictures. Now, this is not a moral judgment or intelligence judgment. This is an educational judgment. This is a systemic education problem. This is not an individual problem. So you're not stupid if you're not a strong reader. You're not. It means that someone failed you. (laughs) And also, anybody can be a strong reader. Any like I don't mean that you'll necessarily be... Mark Twain someday and able to write like that, but anybody can be a 
at age level or above reader, including people with dyslexia like me. I just nobody told me I couldn't do it. So I did it. <laughs> now, I'm not saying again that that's the right path for everybody, but I was never told that you won't be able to do this. So anyway, I'm getting off topic. This has been replicated over and over. And additionally, since his study, it's been discovered that being bad at recognizing words is the most common source of reading difficulties and the hardest to overcome. So when you are adult or nearing adulthood, if you're not able to recognize words, it's not too late, but it's going to be a lot harder to learn that than if you had learned it when you were young. And it's the biggest problem people have. They look at a job application and they're being asked if they don't know the word reference, they don't know who to write down as a reference. Do they, do they know what to reference to find out what reference is? Well, I remember being a kid and our teachers was back when we had physical dictionaries. We would say, how do you spell this word? And they'd say, look it up. And I'm like, I don't know how to spell it. It's like, how do I look up a word? Like, especially if it's a word that starts, that could start with a C, a C-H, or a K. Oh, God. I was like, how, asking you, how do you spell pterodactyl? Look it up. I tried. <laughs> exactly. It's like. And that also goes back to needing to understand root words and the concept that, like, mnemonic. I love that mnemonic doesn't start with an N. <laughs> I think it's M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C. But okay. I, I can't, I'm one of the people I need to be able to see to spell very well. I think this is the episode where all of our listeners find out that we, neither of us would ever do well in a spelling bee. Okay, okay. Actually, you would. I, I am a spell check baby. See, there's this musical called uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and one of the characters has a magic foot where they write out the words with their foot. I'm the one who stands there with their hand in the air and writes them out, and I am still salty because my seventh grade English teacher misheard me during the spelling bee. That whore. I got out. Now, that alone is a little obnoxious, but later on, she did not mishear a kid, or she wasn't listening more accurately, it sounded like, had him repeat it, and he actually goes, ugh, and he spelled it correctly and went to sit down. She goes, no, I didn't hear you the first time. Unbelievable. I am still salty. I got into the car with my dad, and I'm fuming, and he goes, okay, spell it, and the word was separate, and I spelled it. And he goes, yeah, that's right. And he was real pissed, too. Like, solidarity with my, if he's the same person as the one from Blind Man or Terrifying Dad. <laughs> All right, so scientists at large agree that the queuing model is bad. I was not able to find any psychological, developmental, scientific argument against this being bad. Every single one was like, no, this is fucked up. We shouldn't be doing it. But we are still using it. So now that I've given the detailed history of this, let's talk about what this looks like in action. Because this was a lot of, you know, you said in English, please, at one point. Yes. So I want you to picture a kindergarten class. Oh, I got the smell with it, too. Okay. <laughs> so the teacher gets out a book. The cover of the book has a picture on it and some very simple words on it that tell you what the book is going to be. And chances are the teacher reads the book title to you. Now, I'm making up an imaginary book. I'm sure there is a book with this title. I am in no way intending to insult a real book. So I did not look for a book. That's so this book is going to be called A Day at the Zoo. So the kids going in, no. We're going to be looking at stuff that you find in the zoo. That is a context clue right there, which is not a problem in and of itself. Like, it's great when a book tells you from the title, oh, this is going to be kind of about this. It's like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. All right, I know this book's about a guy named Harry Potter and some rock. Yeah, or the Philosopher's Stone, if you're classy. <laughs> in the more accurate sense, yes. So the kid sees an image of the cover, the zoo, the title. Together, the class reads the first few words in the book. This is called a predictive book. 
I see the. The class together memorizes the phrase, I see the, because that will appear on every page. Now, these books are usually learned under the guise of phonics, where the teacher will give them a beginning sound to a word and say either that's the sound we're going to be using this entire book. So every word's going to start with a b sound or it's going in alphabetical order. So they get to the first page and they open the book and there is I see the and then there's a post-it note over the last word, a post-it note. And then there's a big ass picture of an alligator. And the teacher says this starts with an A sound or an ah. The That's kids, just training them to recognize pictures. The kids guess in a vacuum that the word is alligator. The teacher takes the post-it note off of it and they see this word was alligator and then they move on. They don't do any work with the word alligator. They don't break it down into how it makes those sounds. Anything. That should It should be the opposite way around. They you should notice have... that the word alligator looks like an alligator. You draw around it, it looks like an alligator. I have never noticed that. <laughs> But yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't. And then the kid goes home and is like, Mom, I learned the word alligator today. And so mom's like, okay, write it down for me. Or, okay, here's a list of words. Pick out alligator. The kid can't do it. They learned the picture of the word alligator. They didn't learn to spell or how the word works. Um, and then they just move on to the next page and it's covered up again. I see a, it's going to start with a ba, a ba, and it's bear, because obviously. So... They claim that these are lessons in decoding, which is figuring out what the words are using sound letter relationships. Okay, we didn't go far enough, but in your book that you just made up, I'm assuming C is for capybara? Yes. Okay. So sound letter relationships. How do sounds work together, or how do letters work together to form sounds? That's what they're claiming these lessons are. When these lessons are written in textbooks for teachers on the Common Core, everything, that is what these lessons are supposed to be. But they're not. They memorized some words and then they use a picture to fill in the blank. So when the kid sees a picture of an alligator, unless they've never seen an alligator before, they have no reason to learn the word. And I mean, alligator is also a bad one because a kid could see that's like, oh, I see a crocodile. Well, they were told at the beginning it's an ah sound. Oh, okay. So, I mean, yeah, kids could still do that, but they've been given so many clues at this point that getting it wrong is nearly impossible, but they have not, they've still not learned to associate the word with its spelling. So a teacher and literacy coach in Oakland named Margaret Goldberg was working with students using the three cueing approach. That's what she was told she was supposed to do. Goldberg began to observe more and more that kids were, quote unquote, reading books by interpreting the pictures. They would get to a page and see a picture of a dog licking a bone and they're sitting next to a little girl. And it's the page itself says something like, my dog likes to eat with me. And the kid reads it as my dog likes to lick his bone and then switches the page thinking they've read. They truly believe they have uh. read we have tricked these kids into thinking they can read because they're looking at a picture and interpreting it. And the thing is, we can't even tell them they're wrong under the system half the time. And then she further began to realize kids could read books with their eyes closed. They'd memorized the entire book and they thought they were reading. So Goldberg was also cha uh, trained in a system called Systematic Instruction and in Phonological Sight Words, or SIPS, which teaches kids to sound out words. The, you know, the method we were taught in. It's like, mm -hmm. just sound it out. The, what, what does a TH make? Like a th And what's the next letter? Throw, throw. Okay, you're on your way. And like, that's when our parents would come in and help us. That's when our teachers would come in and help us. Because there's no reason to think T-H-R-O-W says, oh, that says throw. There's no reason to think it doesn't say throw. And so that's, that's a great learning opportunity for how words can make different sounds. So she decided to 
conduct an experiment. She taught some kids using the three Q methods and other kids using SIPs. And she found that there were drastic differences, not just in ability, but the way that they read the actual method of reading and the way they approached it. Kids reading through the lines, it kind of sounded like kids who did the uh, phonological method took more ownership and felt like they were really, really doing it because they had put in all this work. The phonics kids didn't use the pictures. The three queuing kids did. Now, it's not that the phonics kids didn't enjoy the pictures. I remember being a kid and I'd be like, I'm reading my book and I'm like, that's a nice picture, you know, and that's... Yep. A, I had my favorite picture in Flat Cat, which in which uh, Flat Cat was flat, but he was cooking something. I I can in my mind, and you know I don't have the ability to visualize very well. I I close my eyes, I can see the vlog under the rug page. That upset a Doctor Who with like, what would be in your hotel room? That's your biggest fear. It would be the vlog under the rug, and it's because of the image combined with the words, though. Just the image by itself wouldn't have bothered me, but the words, you know, I don't like him at all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't like him either. So not only did they start to read differently or read at all, the phonics kids began to drastically outperform the three queuing kids because she worked with at-risk readers and they began to like test out of the system and get back into standard classes. The three queuing kids didn't. Goldberg looks back at that time and says, one of the things I still struggle with is a lot of guilt. I did lasting damage to these kids. I, it was so hard to ever get them to stop looking at a picture to guess what a word would be. It was so hard to get th to ever get them to slow down and sound out a word because they had this experience of knowing that you predict what you read before you read it. She also began to research the cueing method and found no scientific evidence supporting its use, which had never been addressed in her teacher training. She was trained, as most elementary teachers are, that this is a good way. This is the only way. This is the correct way. And the counter argument, which is the only argument, had never been addressed. You only know what you know. So why did this happen? Phonics. You said earlier something about phonics and you're like, these kids can't spell. Yeah. Which is accurate and inaccurate. The purpose of phonics is to teach them to read, but you are also supposed to learn to spell. They are supposed to be like two separate subjects almost. You're supposed to learn how sounds work together for phonics. You're supposed to learn how to spell correctly for spelling. The problem was phonics is hard. It is incredibly hard. I am a certified second language teacher. Phonics is a major part of that. And you have to, like, for what I did, you have to not only know how sounds work together, you have to know all the fucking symbols and stuff. Still can't do that. Um, so it's hard and it's tedious and it's frustrating for the kids and the teachers. But at the same time, it works. And then you're supposed to teach spelling as a separate thing. It's like, okay, so we know that through uh, can be spelled R-E-W-R-R-O-U-G-H. Which one are we using here? Like, it's supposed to be taught not to, not separately, but in conjunction, I guess is better. And I have seen it used completely incorrectly as well. Um, at one of my elementary schools, they did a year, thankfully not my year, where they changed to a phonics-based method of spelling. And they weren't allowed to take off points as long as the word was spelled phonetically. So telephone could be spelled with an F and the teacher would correct it. But at no point were they graded on whether or not they got it right. And kids are not reflecting upon this because they are being told from a young age that grades are the only thing that matters, not ability, which is wrong. So wrong. I believe I, I think we should abolish grading, but, you know, whatever. And it's been proven to be successful as well. Abolishing grading, not phonics. Well, phonics has to. 
teachers didn't want to not count off for those, but they were told and or else. And you got to pick your battles. I get it. So uh, in 2000, in Congress, they created a national panel to investigate how we teach reading and found that good reading involves a combination of vocabulary, comprehension, and phonics. The UK and Australia found the exact same results. This became the whole ba- whole language or balanced literacy method and it was highly recommended to educators and 3qing was like yeah fuck you (laughs) and this is because those who are teaching the balanced literacy method are actually using 3qing and calling it something else they are saying that there should be phonics followed by plenty of time to read and enjoy your reading because that's a major component that's missing is kids are reading is hard And especially when you get past the picture identification and you're supposed to read books you've never actually fucking read before, it's not fun. And I get it. I would hate that too. So they end up because, okay, you got a class of 30 fucking kindergartners. You do not have the time or the ability to go to each one and help them with phonics and help them with comprehension. 3Qing is frankly easier. I get it in that sense. But it also goes back to this is a systemic fucking problem. So the balanced approach people, not universally, but largely, have just re- like dressed up the 3 queuing model, called it something else to make it line up with what Congress wanted them to do. Uh, in a June 2019 article called, uh, or in, the, in Breaking the Code, Erica Meltzer talks about attending a conference at which she met the founder or a founder of the Massachusetts chapter of, dis- of decoding dyslexia. She told this woman, whose name was Nancy Duggan, about a struggle she's ha- having and she doesn't know why. Uh, And it's that kids are not reading from left to right, but their eyes jump around the page. Now, you've seen me. That is actually how I read. But it's because I have, you know, words are jumping around the page for me and I am trying to follow them. Like I said, you can learn to read that way. But that's not what she is seeing. She is seeing kids who never learn to to read left to right. I can read left to right. It's just hard. Nancy told her, oh, that's the three queuing system. Kids are supposed to look at the beginning of the word and then look at the pictures for context clues. That's it. if there are no pictures. Yeah, and if there are no pictures, you're fucked. Meltzer had always known that kids were supposed to look at other parts of the text and at pictures for context clues. And that's not a bad idea by itself. I mean, it is a bad idea when it's by itself. You know what I mean? And so as she put it, quote, I had somehow always imagined they were instructed to do these things if they could not figure out what a word meant. It literally did not occur to me that the, that children could be told to look at just the first letter or two in a word and then be directed to immediately look somewhere else before they had even demonstrated any difficulty making the connection between the letters and the word as a whole. And that is what's happening, is they're being told, okay, just look at the first couple of letters and then just go and look for the context. That's just, no. Now, again, I'm making broad generalizations. There are many excellent teachers out there who are like, fuck this and have adapted things. There are many excellent teachers out there who haven't because they haven't been taught anything else and you can't you don't know what you don't know so she did some digging and discovered what i had guessed was the issue the idea of the three queuing system had been taken by so-called experts and fucked up this same thing happens all the time in education we are given these great ideas and then they are bastardized beyond recognition including the restorative justice method which is how we're supposed to resolve conflicts and common core the common core goal was initially make sure kids are learning more or less the same thing at more or less the same time then it turned into skill drill test because it was easier and it wasn't the teachers making this call it was the people who had to like compile the data and the politicians and all that shit So part of the problem, too, though, is that according to Meltzer's article, they don't really know what the intention was of the three queuing system, saying if the intended message of the three queuing system was originally that teachers should take should care not to 
Teachers should care not to overemphasize phonics to the neglect of comprehension. Its received message has broadly become that teachers should minimize attention to phonics lest it compete with with comprehension. If the original premise of the three queuing system was that the reason for reading the words is to understand the text, it has oddly been converted such that, in effect, the reason for understanding the text is in order to figure out the words. So nobody really knows what the goal was, which means that we don't know what the execution is. And all this is based on a single Venn diagram. One fucking diagram that was never really explained or interpreted correctly to the point where we are clearly unable to read Venn diagrams either because the Venn diagram is three equal parts crossing over. The three equal parts are um, syntactic, semantic, and graphological cues. But people have reinterpreted it to mean as long as they kind of cross over and you can say kids are reading, it's fine. Which means that we need to go back and learn some math too. And this cracked me up though. The website Spellphabet created their own Venn diagram to show what is actually happening in the three queuing method, which was misapplied theory, groupthink, and repetition, (laughs) which is exactly how Common Core ended up as it is, exactly how a lot of things ended up as they were. They also brought up another Venn diagram that's actually an accurate and important one, which is the three important or the three components of language, which is phonology, morphology, and syntax. Context, uh, content. Oh, uh, sorry, no, I misread that. See what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's form, which is phonology, morphology, and syntax. Content, which involves semantics, and then use, which is pragmatics, basically how words work how words work in context, and how you'd use those words in the future, basically, more or less. This is something that's used in speech pathology, but is currently largely ignored in teaching reading. So I used to teach sixth grade English, and this is around the time that their books stop having pictures. And my kids, many of whom loved reading before, didn't know what to do. They'd never had to read. And I, as a middle school English teacher, and this is very common, had no idea how they'd been taught before or how to fix the problem. So elementary teachers are being taught one thing. Middle and high school teachers are being taught another thing. And there's a disconnect where, like Meltzer said, she'd assumed that they'd all been trained to move beyond this. Well, the elementary teachers assumed that training was happening later. And so middle and high school teachers were never trained on how to undo what had been done. And by that point, it's almost too late in a way. So... These kids are struggling to read. They're struggling to spell. They're starting to hate reading. So I, what I did was be like, you know what? Your reading is your homework. And we will talk about the books in class. And we will do what would normally have been homework in class together. Which meant, in my brain, they're going to go home and read with their parents. Which is exactly what happened. Because these kids were largely very lucky to have parents who had the time and ability to do that with them. And in class, we would focus on the context and the content. And we would get up and engage with the material in a physical way. And we did vocabulary. Now, vocabulary is something that seems to be left out a lot. And yeah, because people are going, well, vocabulary is just memorization and we shouldn't do it. Yes, it is memorization, but it's also memorizing things like root words. And if you memorize root words and how words work, you will later be able to recognize words without context. So we look at the word graphologic, which I brought up earlier. It comes from the Latin word graph, meaning writing. And uh, the Greek word logi, meaning the study of. So somebody who didn't know the word graphologic could look at it and go, study of writing. Yeah. Or some variation. They probably wouldn't know that it literally just breaks down into like spelling and content, blah, blah, blah. But they would know that's what this word means. I can understand the rest of the sentence now. We're not doing that when we're not teaching vocabulary or when we're teaching vocabulary simply as memorization. Now, folks listening might be thinking, well, we've done this for 30 plus years, so it can't possibly be that bad. Something has to be working. It's not. It's not? It's not. Oh, no. Because like I said, like, remember he was, as people become more skilled readers, they start moving away from the cues. We never teach them those skills. 
So as kids get older, their uh, reading comprehension starts to like go down and so up. Uh, according to the National Literacy Directory in 2017, one out of every six adults in the U.S. lacks basic reading skills, including those that are just needed to fill out job applications. I understand that, it, it, especially on computers. Man, there's so many people. Who oh, yeah. Com- on computers, um, I didn't actually end up writing this down, but people, it's been proven, only read 18% of what's on any uh, screen. Yeah, I, I definitely understand Which that. is why listicles work so well, as yeah. opposed to blocks of content. Well, it's because like, like, I'm looking at like a thousand words on a screen. It's like, it, it is visually intimidating. People read about 18% of what's on a page and will not scroll more than twice. Unless it's something that they are specifically interested in. 14% of employed adults in the U.S. have low literacy skills. The National Center for Education Statistics show that we score lower than Japan and Finland in literacy. I mean, everyone scores lower than Finland. Though slightly above the international average. Slightly. Uh, Finland actually took an education system that we were implementing and we gave up on too quickly. And they are using it. That was our plan. And Finland, good on them. Because we were like, oh, it's not giving us immediate results. Let's switch to something else. And that's what we do about every two years. You have a brand new education system. We score below the international average on the other two sections, which are is numeracy and digital problem solving. Digital problem solving is the basic ability to use technology to find, interpret, and communicate information and perform basic digital tasks. Not at all surprised by that as someone who has worked with the public on computers. Yeah, and all of that comes back to literacy. If you can't read instruction manuals, you won't learn how to do these things. Um, and then let's look at some history. According to the National Education or National Center for Education Statistics, in 1870, the total population, uh, 20% of the total population was illiterate. 20%. This had more or less a steady decline until 1979, when 0.6% of our overall population was illiterate. Less than 1%. Between 2012 and 2014, they found that 4.1% of our population was at below level one in literacy, meaning fundamentally illiterate. Oh my gosh. 1971.6%. 2012 to 2014, 4.1. And by comparison, only 3% of the global population is illiterate. Shithole countries, my ass. Yeah. Uh, 12.9% of Americans were at level one, which means low literacy. That means 17% of our population between the ages of 16 and 65 are considered low literacy or illiterate as of 2014. 17%. Again, not surprised from working with the public. Basically, what I, based on what I read, if you were born after 1980, you were fucked. Uh, in 2017, the Literacy Project Foundation found that the average adult in the U.S. reads at a 6th to 8th grade reading level. And this has become so accepted that, as the Center for Plain Language puts it, quote, this level is actively used as a benchmark for written guidelines in the medical industry. That's why when you read stuff that should be highly scientific, you're like, wow, this is really easy to read. Yeah. Because it's written at a, purposely written at a 6th grade reading level. Um, so what do we do? Vote. Yeah. research these people that you're voting for and see what is your plan to solve the literacy problem not are you going to throw money at it what is your actual plan have you studied this method and figured out that it's bad and how we're going to fix it and it's also been found time and again that parents who read with their kids produce more literate kids it's true uh and where i work we actually have an early literacy program that has like been implemented statewide and has been like doing some good stuff and it's all boils down to reading read to your fucking kids mm-hmm uh, and this is in part because it turns something, it turns reading into from homework into something that you do as a family and something mm-hmm. that's comforting and something that you enjoy. We it's, we did also have to like really dumb down a bunch of like big scientific technical standing words to very simple points for the parents who never learned how to do this. Yeah. 
And I also, my theory on this is that the parents of the kids who are currently in school were likely born 1980 or a little bit earlier uh, for the most part, or they were born when this wasn't fully implemented. So they never learned the three queuing method and they certainly aren't trained in it. So they're teaching kids phonics like they were taught. Sound out the word. Does the word make sense? Let's talk about how this word makes that noise. So read to your kids. When you're going out in public and you see a word, point to the word and be like, what do you think that says? Or before they're able to do that, hey, that's a stop sign. You can see that, you know, it's got the red edges and then it says S-T-O-P and that says stop. And like, do this with your kids before you even think that they can understand what you're doing. Like, you got a one-year-old? Go fucking do it. It can't hurt anything. Also, like, rhyming helps. I hate rhyming. I love rhyming. I mean, if I know what helps. I just really hate it. Well, you you need to stop this rhyming. Rhyming. I mean it. I can't. I can't do it. I mean, that's Andre the Giant's line. I actually forgot to write down questions, so I'm gonna do this off the. Okay, improvise. 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 So, will this be on the test? The three queuing method has been repeatedly disproven, and yet we continue to use it in schools. No, because your teachers cannot be fallible. It's not the teachers. It's your the administrators system. cannot be fallible. Our illiteracy rates have gone up since the 1970s in the United States. It should be on the test. <laughs> Will the fact that kids who learn to read through phonetic methods consistently perform better in reading than kids who learn through the cueing method be on the test? Yes, because you know what, kids? I've got a flex on you. And at this point, will reading be on the test? No, it'll just be uh, this test that you just gave me was actually just a series of pictographs of you pointing and being angry. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I just want to reiterate, the ability to read has nothing to do with how smart you are. It doesn't. And not knowing that this method is not the best method has nothing to do with your ability as a teacher. But now you know. And now as a parent, you also know. And you need to maybe not play this podcast for a teacher unless you know that they're cool with the word fuck. But and, I mean, get them resources and be like, hey, this is making me uncomfortable because that's how things started to change in Massachusetts. A parent went to the school, an MIT professor parent, and was like, hey, uh, my kid can't fucking read because of this. And he brought in a group of 40 linguists and psychologists, all of whom <laughs> got together to write a letter to the Board of Education for the state. And you're like, yeah, you know this is fucked up, right? And um, apparently, if you want to pull this off in Texas, uh, relate it to somehow to guns and your goal, they'll do it immediately. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is my topic. So uh, you just talked about something very important, and I'm going to talk about something that you sh- that you should not have learned in school and is just horrifying. I think I have to fire you from the podcast now. Well, you know what? I'm a rebel. I never learned how to read good. I did three queuing. <laughs> oh, boy. So I'm going to talk about Gilles de Rays, and in which our podcast becomes dangerously close to being a true crime podcast. I love true crime. You do. Whenever she has, like, free time or is, like, doing something, she will just start playing a number of true crime podcasts in the background. And it is the, the soundtrack to her life is the murder of people. True crime or hauntings. Yes. Sometimes both. Sometimes both, yes. And so Austin knows that I know how to commit the perfect murder. I have, I told, I detailed it to him the other day, but it's only on someone who lives in your house. It won't yep. work on somebody who doesn't. This is why I do all the cooking. So... I'm not poisoning you. That's too easy to track. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about he was a 15th century French nobleman. He fought alongside Joan of Arc, and he also murdered hundreds of children. Cool. Uh, The official count is around 140. Jeez. But some people think it could have been as high as four to 800. Nice guy, basically, is what you're saying. Oh, the best. Also, he did it all before he was 35. So, like... 
this is one of the few times where we shouldn't feel like we've done nothing with our lives yeah, by comparison. Like, oh boy, it's like this guy. It's like I can honestly say I've never killed a child. <laughs> I'm sitting in a closet shouting into the void, but at least I haven't murdered hundreds of children. I'm a little nervous about the way you emphasize the word hundreds. So we he was probably born in uh, 1405. He was Gilles de Montmorency Laval. Did you listen to recordings of that? Oui. <laughs> By reports from his like tutors and people who knew him, he was an intelligent child, he spoke fluent Latin, and he was very studious in military discipline, moral development, and intellectual matters. Moral development. Moral development. Well, this is like 15th century moral development, so it's... I think even in the 15th century, they weren't generally too cool with killing hundreds of children. Eh. Now, like, on an individual I basis... I mean, the uh, Children's Crusade would like to disagree with you. I actually have never been taught about that, and... Ooh, that might be a good future topic. I was thinking about doing a similar true crime children topic soon. So. Oh, it's like that's like the problem with the Crusades is it's an interesting topic, but it has been like so co-opted by like weird like white supremacist groups. Now I went to Catholic school. We never learned about the Crusades, uh, and I'm pretty like, sure yeah, that was us. All these like reclaim the Holy Land people. It's like oh. when he was ten, his parents died. His father died in a gruesome hunting accident mauled by a boar maybe they didn't go into the details of it all i know is that he died in a hunting accident that was allegedly very gruesome that sounds like a boar yeah and that's what happens you got 40 mm-hmm. to 50 wild pigs running across your farm and they didn't have assault rifles back then at best they had cannons and you cannot take a cannon hunting with you i don't know have you tried yes <laughs> this is america his his mom also died, but they didn't. No one knows how he killed her. Maybe, but yeah. So it, also, his dad might have died in front of him. We don't know. That'll fuck you up. Yeah. So they went on to live with the, he and his brother went on to live with their grandfather. He was married at the age of fifteen as kind of a power move by his grandfather to like bring some more money and prestige to the family. And it was uh, Catherine Catherine de Thouars. I, I, I don't speak French. Don't give me that look. I don't either. Yeah, he was married at 15. He did have a kid, eventually. And Does at- that kid survive this story? Yeah. Okay. So at 16, he became involved in a war of succession in Brittany and was able to free a duke who had been taken prisoner and received, as a reward for doing this, land grants and a monetary gift. So at 16, he was like conquering shit and like becoming a mover and shaker in the French nobility. And uh, in 1429, when Joan of Arc was starting to kick ass, Charles VII assigned DeRay to basically watch over her in battle and kind of be like her guy. It's like, this. yeah, this is your dude. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here's a note about the Hundred Years' War. It was 116 years. Lies. Lies. Um, and it was over who got to rule over France, either the Plantagenets and their uh, house Lancaster, which was England, or the house Valoris, which is France. And if you look into this, it is basically all of the not White Walker, not Dragon parts of Game of Thrones. That is intentional because George R. R. Martin said as much that he drew up on this time period for what happened in Game of Thrones. So yeah, years... there's, there's some similar stuff in the um, Elizabeth Bowtry stuff uh, that he clearly drew from, drew from. Oh yeah, and so totally ripped off this war. So like, if if you hated the end of Game of Thrones, maybe study the Hundred Years' War. You might find a better one. If you hate the end of that, well, too bad because that's factual. Yeah. So yeah, he fought alongside Joan of Arc. He was by her side at the Siege of Orleans. And afterwards, he was promoted to the Marshal of France, which was the highest military rank achievable at the time. Uh, He also grew to love Joan of Arc, not like romantically love, but like greatly respect and admire her. And when she was burned at the stake as a heretic, spoiler alert, 
uh, he was devastated. Mm -hmm. Uh, He felt betrayed by the church and God and left the army shortly after she had died. She was a kid, wasn't she? She was like 16. Yeah. But he was like 19. Yeah. I was going to say like, that'll fuck you up. Yeah. When you're at that age, we've talked about this. You don't actually think you're immortal and invincible, but there is a certain idea that those around you can't die because they're also, they're kids. Yeah. People, young people don't die. No, no, never. It's like, that's for old men. So uh, he proceeded to mourn as only one of the wealthiest and most powerful people in his country could at the time. He he had near constant parties. They were open to the public where he was feeding like elaborate feasts to 500 people a day. There were tournaments, jugglers, festivals, comedians, and just all of the stuff you would expect a wealthy Frenchman at the time to just do for fun. He was doing this constantly. There were also plays because he wrote a play. <laughs> it was La Mysterie du Siege d'Orléans. So it was about the Siege of Orleans. This play had over 20,000 lines, 140 speaking parts, and 500 extras. If it was the stand. Yeah. So it's like, so like, you know, I guess teachers who have a very large class and you want to find out a play where you can get everyone involved, <laughs> this would be the one. Oh, uh, or he, just cut because it's important to teach kids how to handle disappointment. So he also built the Chapel of Holy Innocence, where he would give sermons in his own in ornate robes of his own designing. This, of course, was beginning to bankrupt him, and he was selling property at an alarming rate to just support all of the stuff he was doing. Uh, his family was very upset about this. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, there's, here's this, like, 20-something-year-old blowing through all of your money, and he's the head of the household, so he is in charge, and they're trying to figure out ways to stop him from doing whatever he wants. So he's, like, the most stereotypical trust fund baby. Absolutely. So in uh, his family appealed to the Pope to try and disavow his Chapel of the Holy Innocence to hopefully curb some of his spending. The Pope declined. But the king did limit people going into business with him, and as a result, he lost a lot of credit and had to cut back on his extravagant lifestyle and spending. But he decided to resort to other means. Specifically, he invited alchemists to his estate and wanted them to make gold for him. It didn't work, but the story goes that one said he could get gold by entering a compact with the devil. Right. And to do that, he needed to commit a heinous act. He needed to make a horcrux. Worse. So he, he needed kid- to be J.K. Rowling. Somehow not as bad. So he kidnapped a peasant boy and murdered him and wrote alchemical formulas in his blood oh. to make this compact with Satan. That did not get him gold, but it did awaken a thing inside of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so heads up, this next section is going to be very graphic. If you're sensitive, you might want to skip ahead like five, six minutes. If you're sensitive, you probably stopped listening a long time ago. Yeah. So uh, over the next eight years, from 1832 to 1440, DeRays would murder hundreds of children. Uh, he and several agents would kidnap and and also help him murder boys and girls from the surrounding area. He would dress them in extravagant clothes, uh, feed them extravagant food, uh, then drug them with a stimulant. So And then they would take them upstairs to a secret room where no one else was invited and proceed to torture them, tie them up, and hang them from hooks. So the stimulant is so they stay awake longer. Yes. This is like some Hansel and Gretel kind of shit right it, here. Yeah. He would, um, again, he'd like, he and his agents would just kidnap children from the countryside. They'd also, you know, buy children because you could just do that. And they would also promise people, it's like, yes, we're going to bring your son or daughter in to be a household servant or a page or a squire. This is some Elizabeth Battery shit right here. Yes. 
and uh, then they would proceed to murder them. Yeah, mostly he would tie them up, hang them from hooks. Uh, then he would taunt and torture them. And he would say, it's like, then he'd say, take them down. It's like, oh, I'm just going to play with you. But then he would uh, masturbate to them in front of them. He would uh, strangle, behead them, break their necks, uh, drown them, slit their throats. Um, and according to uh, his accomplices, he would also rape them. Uh, sometimes they were while they were alive, sometimes while they were not. And he would be like sent into kind of a rage by the sight of their genitals and mutilate them. Yeah, we definitely shouldn't learn about this dude in school. No. How have I not heard about him on a true crime podcast, I, though? This might be too much for most true crime podcasts. And it's it happens so Okay, long. I heard a podcast do a very graphic rendition of Toy Box Killer, and they haven't covered this. Yeah. He also uh, took great pleasure in seeing their vital organs spill out. Mm -hmm. uh, they would dispose of the bodies by burning them or just burying them or just tossing them out because it was the olden days. Uh, he would even have beauty contests between the severed heads of the children he killed. Jesus. He, sometimes he would actually sit in windows with his accomplices, accomplices and watch traveling families and point out the children he wanted because he had several servants helping him. No, with this. Th this, there's just a British couple that did this exact same thing, yeah. like in the 50s. Yeah. So rumors began to spread around the countryside about him kidnapping and murdering children. But because his, his wealth and position, people were afraid to do anything about it because there wasn't really an authority that could deal with him except for the church. And in 1440, he made a mistake because he kidnapped a church official, not for murder, but as part of an ongoing dispute with a church, with the church, in which he kept him kidnapped for several months. Yeah, the church heard about, uh, they decided to launch an investigation into him because they'd started hearing these rumors too. And they put him on trial and DeRay's confessed to everything. Uh, here's a quote from Brother Jean Boulon, a representative of the Inquisition who was at the trial. The accused has been, was, and is a heretic, an apostate, a sorcerer, a sodomite, an evoker of evil spirits, a diviner, a murderer of innocent children, a criminal, a backslider, and an idolater who has deviated from the faith. This dude, okay, if we pretend reincarnation, you come back as the same person. This dude was reincarnated in England in the mid-1900s. Ooh. Because there was a guy and his wife who did, or girlfriend who did basically this. Fewer uh, kids. But... As part of his con confessions, he confessed to offering the hearts, eyes, hands, and blood of children he had killed to a demon named Baron. I actually know this part of the story, I think. Yeah. Um. But he did never offer his immortal soul. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then he's good. Yeah. Uh, he also visited sorcerers, heretics, and necromancers to learn their arts. Which they point out, this was frowned upon by the Inquisition. <laughs> he did so some signs of remorse a few uh, two years before the trial because he swore that he was going to atone and it was going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to show you know show how he was atoning and he was going to. Stop. I don't think that makes up for the horrific deaths of hundreds of children. Yeah. But he quickly fell back into his murderous pattern. Again, he also again begged for forgiveness and mercy at his trial from God, and he begged the uh, his Christian brothers and sisters to pray to God for his forgiveness, including the families of his victims that were present at the trial. His poor wife during all this too. Like I know she know she must have known it was going on, but like it's the 15th century and she's young and terrified of this dude because why wouldn't he come after her or her kid? Yeah. It was unclear if he was actually repenting or he was just trying to manipulate the Inquisition and hope that his status in society would save him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was he was put to death in October of 1440 and was hung. Again, he was 35 years old. Hanged. Hanged. He was hanged. There's a lot of 
like, this is what he did. There's a lot of theories about why he did it. His contemporaries thought that he was born under a bad constellation sure. and was inherently evil. Sure. That's what happened uh, to me. So some people think that there was some unknown factor from a traumatic childhood. Like, he might. It was, the, it was 15th century France. Everyone was abused to some extent. Yeah, and most of them didn't murder hundreds yeah. of children. Some think it's because he blamed himself for Joan of Arc's death. Some thought that it, he was uh, secretly gay, and this was part of an identi identity crisis. That is... Yeah. Was that theorized in the 1970s? And... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it was from PTSD from his time at war. And one of the ones that I, that like stuck out to be was the diagnosis of schizophrenia around the time... Because... Like, his erratic behavior started around the time of Joan of Arc's death when he was 19, mm -hmm. which is typically when, like, the... And he became, like, hyper-religious well, at he, that point. I mean... But, like, a different form of religion than he had been before. He left the church because he thought they were evil and started his own church, which couldn't possibly be evil. Yeah. So, it's like, it matches up with a, with the age that people have the onset of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So... And if you have that coincide with a traumatic event, goddamn. There is also the belief that he was, in fact, innocent. What happened to these kids, then? They think that he was a victim of a plot of a plot from rival no nobles and the church to basically get him out of power and get him to stop spending all of this money and just doing all of this. So what happened to these kids then? Yeah, this is also not the first time the church has done something like this where they falsified heinous events and acts to get someone to confess to them, to murder them, to kill them and basically just get them out of the way. So there were no dead kids. There was actually zero physical evidence as a part of this trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, just confessions and rumors. Hmm. In 1992, they actually held a mock trial for him and found him innocent based on the lack of evidence at the time. In my head, this is eighth graders. That's the age that mock trial yeah. usually happens. Some uh, some people who were familiar with that trial said, no, this is th this trial was bullshit. He most likely did do this just based on the time. And trials were different back then. Physical evidence wasn't as important. And he had several uh, people who like said, yes, we helped him with these murders. And people who was like, no, we know he murdered these kids. And heard him talk about like his lust for seeing the guts oh. of children fall out. Yeah. However, an interesting note, his accomplices who actually helped with the murders and the sorcerer who um, convinced him that he needed to start consorting with the devil only served a few months in jail. I mean, especially the sorcerer was like, it's his fault. He believed me. Yep. And as a kind of a final note, let's talk about his legacy. The folk character Bluebeard, mm -hmm. who would like, you know, marry a young woman and then murder her and then marry another, mm -hmm. uh, is said to be based on him. And they think Bram Stoker was influenced by him when he wrote Dracula. Yeah, I've always kind of thought that like, the Count Dracula, who it's supposed to be, be based on, what, did it just come out Irish? Based on? <laughs> um, it didn't quite line up. There is something there, but not quite. So yeah, that was a uh, horrifying, they also, some people call him the first serial killer, but that is just patently false. <laughs> yeah. He is, he is potentially horrifying, most likely very horrifying, like even by the murderous standards of medieval France. Like, And so that was something horrifying I learned that I just had to share with people. You're welcome. <laughs> I love true crime, but even that was a little much for me. Yeah. I think it was the beauty competitions where I was just like, I'm out. My brain is checking out of this. Yeah, this was a this was a trip. I I censored this heavily. I'm sure. Yeah. So are you ready for some questions? No. Will his relationship with Joan of Arc be on the test? Yes. Uh, will his play with a cast of hundreds be on the test? No. Will his body count be on the test? Yeah. And will his potential innocence be on the test? Yeah. 
So that's this was a horrifying one. Yeah, thanks for that. And it's well, it's October, and I'm getting a early start. On See, the like you got into the horror in one way, I got into the horror in a different way. Yeah, yours is the horrors of illiteracy. The horrors of yeah, imagine all of the students who would never be able to read this because they don't understand the French context clues. That's true. That's true. Whoa, tying it all together my hands are meshing in front of me you can't see it all right well let's get this wrapped up because i am a hungry and b really one with finish bly manor me too so where can people find us well they can find us at twitter at on the test pod on instagram at on the test pod on facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod and our website on the test pod.com and if they really cared about us what would they do why they would uh give us get they would rate our podcast on itunes write us a review or even just write to us with feedback because we are needy, needy millennials and we need to be validated. And you can also tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, tell your dog, somebody get us, get us people listening to us because we really enjoy doing this. This is episode 54. 54. We've been doing this for more than a year And now. I'll tell you right now, Austin and I have zero attention span. So this is like impressive for us. The fact that we're still like remembering that we're married is impressive. Like this in particular. Yes. I mean, neither of us have ever forgotten our anniversary. That's crazy talk. Oh, we knew from day one that I'd forget it. The only reason I remember it is because it's our cat's birthday. That's true, but it's the year before our cat's birthday. Yeah. I've known Austin for 17 years, and I still can't remember his birthday. I only can remember hers because it is a command. Mm-hmm. She has commanded me to remember it. Just like I'm commanding you now to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, um, and be nice to your cats, teach your kids to read, and don't murder children. Yeah. Um, don't murder hundreds of children. Okay. We're going to have a talk, so on that note... Class dismissed.